Hello, you're listening to the Health Disparities Podcast from Movement is Life. Conversations about health disparities with people who are working to eliminate them. I'm Rolf Taylor, and today I'm discussing health disparities and faith communities with Reverend Willis Steele. Reverend Steele, you work with uh, a couple of organizations. Would you like to just tell us a little bit about your work with uh, the church and also with your company? So I have been an advocate for the rights of patients, people living or at risk of certain illnesses over the years, and I currently am the regional lead for advocacy relations for my company outside of the U.S., Latin America, Turkey, the Middle East, South Africa, and Canada. But the lion's share of my work is done in those developing countries that I mentioned. Um, My wife and I also pastor a church in Camarillo, California, and we have a good blend of congregants and members who are professionals or they're in sororities and fraternities, young people, uh, or maybe they've been in town 66 years. I've just learned from one couple, uh, military, because we're near uh, a military base, naval base. It's important for me because the swath of people who I work with come from all walks of life, but we all have things, if you will, that as a person working in a helping role, whether it's as pastor or as the advocacy lead for my company, I can do something to help them enrich their own lives. And I understand you have a um, very strong tie with uh, Grace Baptist Church in New York. So my wife actually was um, called to ministry in an affiliate of Grace Baptist Church in another town, um, Yonkers, New York. And she was my intern, I was responsible for interns in my first assignment as an associate pastor in Harlem, uh, where I met Dr. W. Franklin Richardson the first time who came as a guest preacher. But ironically, a couple of years later, I met my wife. We dated for a couple of years. We became engaged, got married, and shortly after we got married, her, her church in Yonkers, New York, which was affiliated with Grace, we were both called to pastor the church in Yonkers, which kind of solidified my relationship with Dr. Richardson, working with his youth, his young people, his um, singles, and his couples ministries. So Grace Baptist Church has embraced health for the congregation. Um, could you share a little background about when this started to happen and what the church has put in place, and most importantly, how you feel it's impacted you and the congregation? My home church, Abyssinian Baptist Church, where I'm ordained in Harlem, was doing the same thing all those years back. Abyssinian led a seven-church coalition in Harlem that addressed health issues every single year that I was a part of the ministry at Abyssinian. Then when I went to Memorial Baptist Church in Harlem, my first assignment, Memorial was doing the same thing. And the pastor there led the Harlem Congregations for Community Improvements, which is where a group called the Bomb and Gilead was birthed. Now I'm at Grace, and Grace is doing the same thing in Westchester County and in the Northern Bronx, and that impacted me because my wife and I were able to bring the spirit of those things we had learned over the years before we got in ministry, just as church members, then as junior 
pastors or associate pastors to our own church. So the influence has been across the whole spectrum of our ministry engagement, and it, it has helped us make sure that it's top of the, the spectrum for our members at our church even now in Camarillo. Why would you say that uh, health has become so central in communities of faith? I would say it's becoming more central, and I say becoming because every church is not on board with the health they still believe. It's just that you preach the gospel, you preach the Bible, you preach Jesus, and as we do, you preach and teach about God, and that's it. I will tell you, for those pastors who have understanding, salvation is a centerpiece of, of the Christian faith. But we have an understanding that it is salvation on a spiritual level, yes, but also salvation that speaks to the tangible needs of the people of God. That's what Jesus taught. Salvation for your spiritual being, yes, so that there's a reconciliation between you and God. But as importantly, if you look at the history of Jesus in the New Testament, when you look at his Sermon on the Mount, when you look at his parables, he taught by illustration to the people and then later explained those illustrations in minute detail to his disciples. But it was because he was healing the sick, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, making the blind see, the deaf hear, etc. So think about this. He did all those things that were healing people, transforming their situation, but he also did things that transformed people's lives so that they were living better. Feeding someone doesn't mean that they're sick, they're hungry, yeah? But think about that. We're called not to just address the soul needs, we're called to address the tangible needs. So the reason you're seeing a shift where pastors and other faith leaders do get it is because they're, they're latching on to the spirit of what Jesus did by addressing salvation, not just spiritually, but in the tangible need. And I'll say one more thing there. If you're hungry, I can pray with you till you're blue in the face. It doesn't put food in your belly. If, if you're naked and I have a closet full of clothes or my congregants have a closet full of clothes they're not using, it doesn't change the situation by just praying for the person who needs clothes. Someone has to go to the closet, take out some of those clothes they're not wearing, and, and share them. If you need a ride, and I have a car, and you don't, and you don't have car fare, praying that you get a way to work or to your next appointment doesn't miraculously bring a jetliner, a train, a bus, or another car. If I've got the car, then I bloody well need to get in the car, offer you a ride, and take you where. That's salvation for that person in that moment. And again, that's why you see the change. So I guess what you're saying where the shift is taking place is that the role of the church is moving from getting people to heaven to actually in the here and now, not getting to heaven quite so quickly. I would argue... It's not moving from getting people into heaven. We still have to do that. But it's shifting to allowing people to understand that God intends for people to live well here on earth as well. And if, if there's a way to bring salvation to a situation, you do that in whatever ways you can. And a lot of times that's providing information on bad health or bad diet 
or, or uh, bad practices, if you will, mm-hmm. not to condemn a person, not to land blast a person, um, to put it in perspective, um, it is important for pastoral leaders to address the sin, if you will, or the situation, not necessarily attack the person who may be caught up in a situation. That's the only way to bring relief. So what are some of the most important or challenging health disparities that are affecting the congregations in the churches that you're working closely with? I would tell you in my church and in my community, right now it's immobility. Um, A number of the people who live in the county that I live in, although it's sunny and the beach is a 10-minute drive from so many people's home, um, you can be outdoors more than you can be in and be comfortable because you have a more steady, warmer climate. People, as they age, are still impacted by joint pain in their knees, mm-hmm. joint pain in their hips, you know, osteoarthritis. Uh, I have one member who is the most wonderful person you ever want to meet, sweet as pie. But there are some days she cannot make it out to church, especially if it rains, because her knees hurt so badly. I have another member who's, who's pushing 78, and unfortunately, he got one knee replacement address, stalled on getting the other one done, and now he's confined, or, or he's resolved, that he'll never be able to walk normally again because he didn't take the time to get the second knee done. But guess what? Now he's suffering with diabetes. He's also suffering with high blood pressure, right? And sedentary sedentary lifestyle because he can't move about as easily with a bad knee. And so those are just two examples of many people that I see in the faith community and broader community that have joint pain issues. So... We have a big push in our county, in our church, and our church is leading this effort to really help people think through diet, think through exercising, think through walking more readily, riding bicycles, being out and about. Um, and, and I'll give an example of that maybe later. The point is you have to address the need of how these people are dealing with the challenges of mobility in their life. So we're committed to doing that while we continue to feed them spiritually. So you have very strong messages about exercise, movement, mm-hmm. um, nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, what about things like mental health? Absolutely. Mental health is not a dirty word in faith mission. That's our church. Uh, we talk about um, mental health. Uh, we talk about therapy. We let people know that there are some things that we certainly will provide pastoral counseling and care for, but there are some things that we may not be the expert in that may require a deeper level of professional care. That's the way we frame it, professional care, and it's speaking to the professional care of the mind. And we, 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 we teach our church members that... Um, Therapy is not a dirty word. So that's not seen as being in conflict with um, faith and prayer in Absolutely anywhere. not. We teach that the more whole of a person that you are mentally, emotionally, physically, the more whole you can be spiritually. When you take off the barriers, when you remove the, the layers of, of, of 
even emotion that, that hides pain or challenges that you may have faced, even if it's a physical uh, barrier. If the more you remove those barriers and those layers, the better you're able to have that oneness with God as we understand him from our faith perspective. Because you can put more focus and energy on the time that you spend with God in our understanding. So you have a very strong set of messages around behavioral change, and that's working at a, at a grassroots level, really uh, working in a direct connection with those individuals. Could you comment a little bit about what, uh, what kind of work you're doing at a policy level to affect more structural change? I'll deal with policy, but I want to give you this example I promised. We have a lot of young adults and young people in the church. We do a lot of activities with them outside of the church. But very quickly we learn, because this is a new congregation for us, about a year old, we don't have an activity for the young people that's not intergenerational. The why is because we encourage mobility. So we're going to go to a museum, which we've done, and walk for three or four hours. How invaluable is that to pipe the interests of a more senior person in the church who has some mobility issues, who doesn't get out of the house as much, when you've got young people there who can assist, who can walk with them, who can can be life to them, with them, as we go on these journeys. And so making sure that whether it's miniature golf, whether it's a trip to the beach, a museum, or lunch out in West Hollywood or, or Venice Beach, the seniors are excited about the fact that they're engaging with the young people in the church, which brings me to policy. The policy piece is important for us because um, we address the young people to be the brainchild of the policy efforts that we can help impact change on, right? For example, we have a webinar coming up. Uh, this, it happens to be on mortgage lending issues mm -hmm. that entrap people, if you will. But it's not just the leadership that's getting on the webinar with other clergy and, and council people in the community. It's young people because they can grasp stuff a little bit more quickly, if you will, because of their youngness of mind in some cases. And yet the, the, the seniors are, are able to get that message from maybe the deacon or one of the pastors who's on the call. But how invaluable is it that a young person can sit down with a senior and say, mother or father or uh, Mr. So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so, here's what the call was about. Here's something we think you ought to look at to make sure you're protected. Um, when there's a council person or a senator or a mayor in the area who's doing something that we feel doesn't speak to the needs of our people, it is important to write letters. It is important for people to send emails, make phone calls. And you know the people who are more senior are very apt at making a phone call because those calls are logged just like a letter or email is. And so we've taught them to use their voice. And while we're not suggesting, based on the separation of church and state, that we as a church body take a position, a political position, on the left or the right or the center of anything, we encourage people to be informed right. about policies that impact our community and their individual lives. You know, there's a council meeting coming up on the 28th. In fact, there was a council meeting last night in our community. We simply encouraged every member 
to take the opportunity, go to the council meeting, listen, look at the issue, and this is redistricting in our county, or, or in our town rather, look at the issue. If you have questions or concerns, that is the time to get your concern or your question on the record and get the answers that you're looking for for those who are supposed to be leading our particular city. It sounds like your um, kind of intergenerational emphasis is a very neat solution to the digital divide, mm -hmm. making sure that technology is accessible to um, older generations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because when it comes to church and local community behavioral change, you know, it's important to, to overcome the digital divide. Uh, but we have to be realists. Some of our seniors still have flip phones, a number of them, and they're not going to change. I have one senior who's retired who drives for private car dealerships, right? He might drive to Arizona tonight, come back in two days, and he's going down from our county to Temecula or San Diego or Palm Springs. But guess what? He likes to use navigation, but he doesn't have a smartphone. So if it's not in the car, he's got a map, or he's got his flip phone, which he's figured out how to use navigation on that. His reasoning is mobile smartphones today give him too much to deal with. There's too much going on. It's too busy for him. So how do we address someone like that when we're creating an app for people to do their offerings on, to make it simple if they left their checkbook or something, or there's some messaging that they can look at on a computer that may not be in print format. Unfortunately, some things we do have to print for them, mm -hmm. right? If they don't have a computer at home that they're actively using <coughs> and they don't have a smartphone, the solution is, for an example, best example, when we're having an event and we ask people to register and that registration is web-based, the young people are able to print out a form, allow them to fill it out, fill it out with them, and then enter it on the computer. So they're registered just like everyone else. Uh, the California Museum of Arts. If you want to register as a group, it's web-based or phone. It's easier for us to do our thing on the computer. So we let the people who don't have a computer register on a paper format that the young people help create and then add them into the system. So they're not excluded. So that's the important thing, whether it's health information, whether it's financial information, whatever it is, we have to bridge the gap in our own way so that everybody is included and no one is excluded. Reverend Steele, thank you so much for, for sharing those insights. Um, you've got one foot in New York, another foot in California, and then your third foot somewhere in South America. It's quite impressive the reach that you, that, that you have. Yeah. yeah. Thanks very much for speaking with us today. My pleasure.